thing that we can have as we see God and we see him revealed in Christ and the hope that they had was real. And yet the hope that we have seeing through the lens, as it were, through Christ is more filled in. It's more clear for us. And so as we worship, it's with eyes that are even more open, can see a little more. You can't read too far in the Psalms until you understand and see the particular nature of them. They are psalms, they are poetry, they are meant to be sung. And so there's passion and emotion that's a part of them. They are driven by that. They are written really more to the heart than the mind, although they certainly inform both. They are to lead us in the emotional, powerful worship of our God, to lead us with passion. There's an honesty, a brutal honesty that we see in this psalm as well as others. They don't blink at the reality of life, at the difficulties that are there. The psalmist is not ashamed in any way to not show his emotion, even as he prays and pours his heart out to God. As he talks, he gives his lament and his praise, his complaints, as long with his along with his thanksgiving. He's not ashamed. And the guide for us is to do the same, to approach our God in the same way, passionately. Psalm 90 takes us there. It's brutally honest. It's passion filled. It tells us about God. It tells us about us. And then it gives us a response as we understand who we are in light of who he is. And there's great hope at the end of the psalm as well as at the beginning. Some observations. The first two verses and the last two verses really form kind of bookends to the psalm. Begins with God, ends with God. It's a great place to start and a great place to end. In the middle, we see this uh, really a description of humanity, a reality of our lives as we look at how we live and and, and the the difficulties, trials, the frailty, mortality that we have in our own lives. Verse 12 is really kind of the pivotal verse in the psalm. Everything leads up to that and then it leads away from that. We'll look at that. And then there's a response in verses 12 through 17 of what do we do in light of who we are and in light of who God is. A few summers ago, uh, my wife and I had a chance to lead a missions trip to Mexico, Pueblo, Mexico, with Camps Crusade when we worked with them. And we took a bunch of students and a bunch of staff um, to Mexico for a summer. And it was a great trip. But if any of you have been in, in cross-cultural kinds of settings one of the things that you know is, is true of that setting is that it makes you very tired, that it, you are fatigued and tired. And I remember after the days would go by, we would go on campus and talk with students and the day and I would come home just wiped out. And you realize that in those settings that it just tires you out. And at times I would think, is there something wrong with me? Why am I so tired? And I realized that I wasn't home. I realized that the place I was and the world in which I was interacting was much different than the world that I was most familiar with. And so it wasn't home and it felt a lot different. And there was a sense of of tiredness as a result of that. One of the things they found in that setting when I was in Mexico that I would do consistently because I could always count on it was would buy a Snickers bar. I could go to a restaurant and order enchiladas at one place and enchiladas at another and they'd be completely different. I never knew exactly what I was going to get. But I could buy a Snickers bar and I could open it up and I knew exactly what I was going to get. And there was somehow this this sense of comfort when I would get the Snickers. I go, yes, I know what this is. I know this will taste good. And this will remind me of my home. This will remind me consistently that I like Snickers bar and they're just like back in the States. Something else that was true of our trip there, though, was our, our youngest daughter, who was almost three at the time, was just old enough to know that she was in a strange place 
and yet young enough to not be able to really sort that out. And so she had a difficult time. At times she would throw these tantrums or we would try to put her down for a nap. And she was almost inconsolable at times because she knew that she was not home and she knew that she wanted to be home more than anything else. But she really couldn't put that even into words. But we realized she just wants to be home. That's what she wants. And she would take her blankets and she would lay down and we'd finally get her to fall down. She would take her blankets and she would hold on to them and she would go to sleep. Those reminded her of home. That was the comfort for her. Do you ever feel like that? You ever feel like something isn't just quite right in your life? That you want to go to a place that's safe and secure? We were made for that. We were made to be at home. A place of safety, of security, a place where we don't have to worry what's going to happen, how we will be taken care of. A place away from all the difficulties and circumstances of life. Well, that's what we were made for. And that's what this psalm as a theme it begins with. And the theme is carried throughout the entire psalm. It's to call us to think about our home, to think about where we can run. The psalm was written, most believed, by Moses in their time when they were wandering in the desert. And it's written to a group of people whose only home they'd ever had was in slavery in Egypt. And now the home that they had was constantly changing. It was moving from place to place to place. They, their address, if you will, changed constantly. And so as we look at the first verse of chapter 90 here, of Psalm 90, we see, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. We see that Moses is calling them to remind them that God is a dwelling place for them. As they moved from place to place to place, that he was the place that they could rest. He was a refuge for them, that he was a safe place that they could run to in spite of the changes in their surroundings and their circumstances, that he was a safe dwelling place for them to run to. The presence of God was the place that they could go to and know that they were safe and secure and that that place would not change, that God would not move away. The message is the same for us. We have a heavenly father who is a refuge for us that we can run to. He is a heavenly father that we can find our home in. Everything that we ever wanted and were made to have, we will find as we run to him. He is constant and he's sure for us from generation to generation. We all have places that we run to internally, physically, perhaps places that we run to in an attempt to escape the reality of the world that we have. A place that offers some sort of comfort, some sort of security. Some of those places are good and they're fine and some of those places are destructive. They lead us down a road of nothing but slavery and they offer promises that are false. They offer promises of comfort and control. They offer promises that this will be home and a safe place. But they're not. We've tasted those and you know that they leave us empty. And yet God is the only safe place that we can run. And we see here that he is our dwelling place. He is a place of refuge for us. As one commentator put it in the in the, the panorama of time and eternity, we have a fixed address. We have one place that we can run to and know that God is there with us, regardless of circumstances that we find ourselves in. Psalmist goes on to describe for us God as well as being everlasting to everlasting. It says everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And the point there is fairly clear. 
that he has always God. He has always been God. He is God right now. And he will be God in the same way that he's always been. He will not change. He will stay fixed exactly the same for us from generation to generation. While our generations go from one to the other, he will be the same from everlasting to everlasting. And as Bill would say, we don't have a category in our brain for that. We don't understand that God is fixed and will never change. But we rest in this kind of God, not just for our generations or the past generations, but the future ones to come, the future generation for our kids and for those that will follow. He tells us that he dwells in Isaiah 57, 15, that he dwells in eternity. He lives there. He resides there. And it's difficult to understand for us, but it's true. At this point, Moses turns for us. The psalmist turns for us and he describes now our state, our condition, our predicament as men, as humanity, our true condition. And he gives us an honest look and this honest look is healthy for us. We need to be able to see what's really true because so often we don't see it. So often there's a, a veil over our eyes to really see the true condition that we live in as we go day in and day out. And he describes at least three characteristics that are kind of woven together to paint a picture of our state of how we are. In verse three, he begins, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, you return man to dust. It describes the mortality, the sense that we are transient, the stuff that we're made of. Some of us more than others, but the stuff that we're made of will not last. And the older we get, the more we realize it's not going to last. It was made to come to an end. And someday our flesh, our body, what we see a part of us will be dust. The backdrop of that is obviously in Genesis chapter three. If you turn with your Bibles there, Genesis three, verse 19, we return to dust because we're made from dust. But it's all the backdrop is a curse, the curse that came at the time of the fall with sin. A variety of things came. But in, in Genesis three nineteen, we see by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it. You were taken for you are dust and to dust. You must return. And it's so healthy for us to be reminded that we are mortal, that we're finite, that we will come to an end. That the stuff that we're made of will eventually end. That we're a vapor, we're a breath, or other ways that we are described. And all this is by God. He brings it to us for a purpose. We see in verse 4, contrast, man is dust. For a th- and then verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it was past or as a watch in the night. A thousand years to God are nothing. But in a thousand years, we're dust. As we see who God is and his eternity, the fact that he is everlasting, we're humbled. When we see who he is, as we see him in light of who we are, we bow the knee and we say, we need you. We need you. Blaise Pascal wrote this. When I consider the short duration of my life swallowed up in eternity before and after the little space which I fill, and even can see engulfed in the infinite immensity of space of which I am ignorant and which knows me not. I am frightened and astonished. And thus we should be. We think about our life in the span of eternity. It's like that dot on that infinite line. And yet the problem is we think ourselves to be so important. We think that somehow we are important in that little infinitesimal dot. 
in the span of eternity, in the vast immensity of who God is. We need to remember that and to live in light of that. We're called to live and to remember that we are finite. It goes on, the, the psalmist, to lead us from this transience, this sense of being mortal and finite to the, the frailty of humanity. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. There's a frailty that is to life that we have. Isaiah 40, the, the chapter that I read in the call to worship, if you would turn there, another passage I want to look at. Isaiah chapter 40, another chapter just filled with these contrasts between who man is and who God is. But chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. Isaiah writes, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Again, the message is clear that we are like a flower that fades. But it's contrasted with God's word and what he says and who he is, which stands forever, which can never fade. It reminds us that there's only one who's strong. There's only one who has real strength. And that's not us. At times we think we have strength. At times, and usually that strength is, is in relation to somebody else stronger than somebody or somebody stronger than me. But in the end, what's, what will really be shown is that we have only strength that God has given to us. In the end, there's one who's strong. There's one who will last. There's one that will endure. And it's not us. And that the most healthy and strong of any of us are just like the flower in the field that a little boy or little girl takes and picks. And it's done for. I love to watch football. And at times I'm, I'm taken just by the, the, the size of some of the players and the strength that they have and the speed that they have. And I'm tempted to think that they're invincible, that times they won't get hurt because how can they get hurt? These guys are big and strong. And yet it doesn't take but one play to watch a player being carried off the field on a stretcher to realize it doesn't make any difference how big we are, how strong or how small we are. The reality is that we are frail and in our time we will fall and we will fade because that's what God says. And we need to remember that it's important to not forget. It sounds morbid, but it's not. It's just reality as we live that way. And as our years go by, I think we, we buy into that more and more. See, time makes liars of us all. Time makes liars of us all. The psalmist goes on. Talk about our transience, our mortality. Talks about our frailty. And then he talks about really our fallenness, our fallibility under God's wrath. Verse 8, we see, he says, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in light of your, of your presence. We see that as we stand before God, we're not only mortal, we're not only frail, we're also sinful. That we justly deserve God's wrath. We find that all of our shortcomings, all of our sinfulness, our propensity to sin, all those things are laid bare before him who sees. He sees all things in our lives. And that's the, the state that we find ourselves in. That he sees us, he knows us. Verses 9 and 10 describe for us really this wrath in a different kind of way. 
For all of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They soon are gone and we fly away. Toil and trouble. There is a harshness in life that is connected with the wrath of God. There is a harshness that we have and we feel. One doesn't have to live many years before they taste that. That comes face to face with the reality that life is hard. That there are difficulties that you come and you can't do anything about. Some more difficulties than others, but everyone has difficulties. Everyone experiences that. And the truth is, we can't say that we deserve any better. We can't say that we deserve a better life. The fact is, most of us, our lives are much better than we deserve. And that's all the result of the, of the curse. The curse that everything has fallen and life is difficult and we are falling. We live in this world that brings difficulties and hardships and affliction and suffering. And we can't expect anything different. Sin does yield wrath, God's wrath eternally. This, the message here really describes his wrath temporally. What does it feel like here and now to experience, to live under the curse, the difficulties, trials, hardships that we have? That's what it feels like. There's a harshness to life. And the honest person looks at it and sees, yep, it's real. Well, this is our state. And then the, the author concludes this section in verse 11 with this. He says, who considers... The power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you. And he says, who really acknowledges you? Who really understands what it means to fear you? Who really lives understanding the gravity of their own sin and fallenness in light of your holiness and your greatness? The power of his wrath and the quality of the reverence that is due him eludes all of us. None of us get it. And that's the state we find ourselves in. Romans 3, Paul puts it like this in, in stating, uh, quoting Isaiah. He says that none are righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God. And so this is the state of humanity. This is our predicament. We're frail. We find ourselves to be mortal and finite. We find ourselves to be fallen and given to sin and living under the wrath of God. And that brings a difficulty in life that is real. Our condition is clear. The question is, what do we do with that? What do you do when you see it clearly in different times? It's more clear than others. The difficulty of it. There's times that we want to just turn away. We want to deny it. We want to somehow live as if that's not really true. I want to live as if I will live forever. I will never die. And yet that's not true. Our, our, our society, our culture is so given to living that way of trying to live as if these things aren't true. And yet we need to be reminded of that. There's no real fix to this in and of itself. There's only a place to run. And that's into the hands of our father. The psalmist at this point describes a dwelling place that we have in God from generation to generation. And then he moves right into this reality of what we find ourselves. Frailty and the difficulty and the fallenness that we're in. But the question really is, how then if we find ourselves to be like we are and we want to run towards God, what does it mean to go home. What does it mean to run to him? How is it that we enter into his presence? How is it that we pursue him? It's not like it's a place we can go physically or geographically. But how is it we get there? And the psalmist for us tells us it's prayer. 
He takes us, simply put, he says, the way we enter into God's presence is through prayer, by seeking his face. And that's in verse 12 where we turn. So he turns and he says, this is true of us. So teach us as he has his request and his entreaty to the father to God, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. I mentioned before, this is the pivotal verse. Everything kind of turns here. You see, the, the ESV has this word. So in light of all these things, teach us to number our days. We need him to teach us. We need God to reveal the reality of who we are. And that's a great prayer. God, show me how fleeting my days are. Help me to see that because because on my own, I can't. Number our days. Teach us to number our days. The numbering of the days there is more than just, you know, just clicking them off going, there's another one, there's another one waiting for the last one to come. The, it has an evaluative kind of aspect. As we go through our days, we evaluate our days and, and we live in light of the reality that they are fixed. We live in light of eternity because we know we have this little space in time that we live. Someday we'll be done with but we make decisions and we ask him to teach us to number, to evaluate and to live reflectively as Christians. We don't just waste them. We don't live as if we will have as many days as we want. Psalm 39:4 says, oh, Lord, make me to know the end. Make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Help me to know this. Ephesians 5, Paul writes 15 and 16. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of our time because the days are evil. Be careful how you walk. Be careful how we live, making the most use of them. And being wise in that case is making the best use of our time because the days will pass. The days are finite. Wisdom is living in and under God's perspective. It's seeing life as as he sees it and then living in accordance with that. You know, this is a great time of year as we begin counting days again of the new year, 2005, to begin to ask that prayer, ask God the same thing. Would you teach us individually? Would you teach us corporately to number our days? Help us to know how to live. Help us to live reflectively. Help us to live and to fill our days with things that are worthwhile. Help us to invest this year in a way that would be honoring to you. And the way we do that is is realizing that those days are short. And that they're finite. Author goes on from that. The first request. Teach us to number our days. Verse 13 we see. He says to return. And he call. It's a call for mercy. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. And it's a request. It's, a, it's asking God to have pity on us. To have mercy on us. In the midst of this world. In the midst of the difficulties. In the midst of the harshness of life. Verse 14, we see we ask, he asks to be satisfied. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Satisfy us with what? With you, with the love, your steadfast love that is permanent for us, that is fixed. And what that means is giving up on finding satisfaction anywhere else. It means running to him and saying, would you satisfy us? Would you show us that it's only in your arms, in your house, in you, that we will ever be truly satisfied and that we would give up on finding home, finding that anywhere else. And that would be a part of the way that we live. 
even finding satisfaction in the resolution of our difficulties. We find satisfaction in him. And then verse 15. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. And there is this sense of gladness that he would grant. And I don't quite know what it means when he talks about the number of days of affliction and the number of days of your gladness that somehow gladness would override that. I don't know if it's just one for one. I think my prayer would be a little bit different. But I think the idea is that that the days of gladness of rejoicing in him would, would cover and would consume the days of the affliction, the days of difficulty, that we'd be able to rest in that. And so whether it's one or however many days that we have, that we would understand that in his gladness, that he will cover that, the difficulties and affliction that we have. We see God in these four, the walls, if you will, these four requests. We would seek his wisdom. We would seek his mercy. We'd seek to be satisfied that he would satisfy us with his love and that he would make us glad even in the midst of our afflictions. And it's in those things that we pursue him in prayer. We pursue him and spending time with him, seeking these things. We find his presence. We find ourselves there. Verse 16, the, the psalmist then takes us and, and reveals to us really his ultimate hope. He desires satisfaction. He wants God's wisdom. And all these things are really given to enable us as we walk with him. But his ultimate hope in verse 16, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to your children. You see. The desire of the psalmist and our heart's desire ultimately is that he would be glorified. Ultimately, that he would be put on display to his servants, to the next generation would see who he is and what he has done. Not just my circumstances would be resolved, not just that I would be able to come away from affliction or difficulties or any of those things. That's not the goal, but the goal is that he would be put on display in and through our lives. And that's what he says, and that our children, those who follow us, have a heritage that look at those who would trust God and desire that he is the point and not ourselves. And the verse 17, we come to the end of the, the psalm, the final request. We end again where we began. But the favor of our Lord, our God, be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. He ends where he begins about who God is. And the result of those who find their hope in him, those who find him as a dwelling place. And in this case, those who find him, who have the favor, the favor of the Lord upon them, the favor there, the beauty, the delight, the goodness of God as it shines on us. We see what happens is the work of our hands, the request, the hope, believe the certainty is that the work of our hands will be established. I think what that means is that it's made firm. It means that there's meaning and significance and purpose that is brought to the things that we do. As we count and number our days as they go by, as we reflect on them and we look to him, we say, would you make meaningful the days that I have, the work that I do? Because apart from that, it's just a bunch of stuff in the midst of eternity. It's stuff that's going to die. We're going to die. It's stuff that doesn't have any meaning apart from that. But as we look to him, we ask him, shine on us, to have, that his beauty and delight would be upon us, he would establish, he would make firm the things that we do. And in him, we have significance. In him, everything that we do, in light, even in the midst of all of our difficulties. Isaiah 26, 12 says, All that we have done, you have accomplished for us. 
All that we have done, you have accomplished. Everything that we've done, you've ultimately been behind it. And Psalm 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless he's doing the work in our lives, unless he's bringing meaning to the things that we're doing, it's in vain. It's emptiness. It's vanity. And so we look to him and say, would you take our work and would you make it meaningful? Would you take our days and make them worth something as you would? Meaning and significance alone come from him. However, our hope, although these verses walk us through our days and we see that the days that we can count, there is meaning, but there's also difficulty, there's toil, there's harshness that's there. And yet all of those, these days that we can count are just a taste of the days to come. The hope that we experience here are pointing us towards eternity, the days ultimately that we were made for. There's hope in these days, but only as a down payment, as a foretaste of the hope that we will experience in eternity. It's a great thing that God would say, I'm going to bring meaning to your days, but I want to do more. See, coming face to face with our frailty and our fallenness and difficulties as we hit them head on. It's like a signpost for us. And it tells us that we're made for another world. The signpost says there's something else for you. You see, many people in the world and would stop at the point that life is hard and then you die. That's it. There's no more. Well, the Christian says, yeah, life is hard. There is a reality to the hardness of life. And yet there's something more for the one who is following after God. There's something more for the one who is seeking to be at home with her father and with his father. When God acts on us, there's something eternal. And he's made us for that, for that very purpose. And his favor and his delight rest upon us. The work of his hands, something eternal is taking place. Paul, if you guys would turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul has in view something that's, as he looks forward, he sees not just to the days that can be counted, but he's looking at the days that can't be counted. And he allows that to inform how he lives. And the same call for us is to live in light of that, of the days that we can't. Chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Chapter 4, 2 Corinthians. So we do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. This slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He says, this is wasting away. But inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. The light and momentary trouble, it's achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. He's looking to the days you will be with the Father for eternity. And certainly, an eternal number of days in the very presence of God is much better. And will far outweigh the days that we spend here in the presence of God, but also under the curse, also in the midst of difficulty and trials. And so he calls us to lift our eyes and say, we are made for that world. And as we come bump into these difficulties, we raise our eyes. Have you ever wondered why we're so surprised when things happen? As if, you know, what's this? I'm sick. What's this? I'm hurt. Why is it that we're surprised? It's because we find ourselves trapped in time, frailty and sinfulness. And yet we're made for something else. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. 
For we are so little reconciled to time or to mortality that we are even astonished at it. He has grown, we exclaim, or how time flies, as though the universal form of our experience were again and again a novelty. It is as strange as if a fish were repeatedly surprised at the wetness of water. And that would be strange indeed, unless, of course, the fish were destined to become a land animal. We find ourselves surprised at the, the, the real reality that we live in. And yet those are signs that we were made for something else. Even as we try to deny it, even as we try to run from it, God continues to be so gracious to remind us we're finite, that we are frail, and ultimately that we're fallen. We're made for something else. And all of this points us towards a father who is our home right here. And now he's our refuge that we can run to in prayer. We can find his presence just as real as any place else as we run to him. But more than just home here, he offers an eternal home for us who are seeking to follow him. Let me pray. Father, we're so grateful that you have promised to be our refuge. You have been our refuge. And at times we wonder, will you be our refuge again? Will you be that place that we can run to? Would you remind us of that today? Would you remind us of our frailty even even as we walk out the doors, that somehow on a consistent basis, as we count those days and we evaluate them, that we would live them in light of you, in light of knowing that they will come to an end. And ultimately, Father, we ask you to help to keep our eyes fixed on you, ultimately for our days and our, our years here, and ultimately for eternity when we will be at home with you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and stand, if you would, for the benediction.